0: in your Bibles with me to John's Gospel and chapter 1 this morning and from verses 43 down to 51, the calling of Philip and Nathanael. Isn't it true that there are some things in the Bible and the Christian faith that we begin to think about that are perplexing for us, that stretch our minds, our understanding? For example, Did you choose to be here today, or was it foreordained that you would be here? There are big fields of theological doctrine, the free will of man over against the sovereignty of God, God's election of us, or our choosing of Him. We say, well, these things are challenging. They're difficult for us to wrap our Uh, limited minds around, and yet the Bible teaches that both of these things are true, that God elects, and yet we are called to make a choice, that God predestines a people for salvation, and yet we are called to receive and to believe in Him. How is it then that both of these things can be true? That seems on one side of things, from a logical and rational point of view, impossible, does it not? Well, let me try and put it into terms that are perhaps easier for us to access. As I sat in the man's uh, spare room this morning at the window, praying and preparing for this morning, I was struck by the sound of a, well, I presume was a private jet hurtling along the runway there and taking off into the sky. And as I Reflected on that, I realized that that plane is going to a predetermined destination. Let's say they are flying from London, uh, from Dundee to London. Perhaps then they're flying on from London to New York. The destination has already been determined by the proper authorities. The Department of Transport has ratified the route that that flight will take. The Civil Aviation Authority have given their approval to its flight path. The airline have made provision, provision of a plane, provision of air crew, of cabin crew, of a pilot, of ground crew, etc. Everything is set and it is approved. However, on board that plane, there are passengers with free will. There are passengers who have made a series of choices— They've chosen to fly, first and foremost. They've chosen which airline they're going to fly with. They've chosen what date they're going to travel, what destination they're going to go to. They might even have chosen what part of the plane they're going to sit on. And once they're aboard, they're not chained in one place. There is an enormous amount of freedom to move about that plane as it travels toward that predetermined destination. They can eat, they can sleep, they can read, you can talk, you can walk around. And yet, at the same time, they are being carried to that predetermined port. You have sovereignty involved, but you also have freedom of choice involved. And in that scenario, they do not contradict. And every so often we come across these kind of truths within God's word where they are wedged into the same thing and they force us to consider what it is that we believe. Here we are in uh, John's Gospel and chapter one, and on the face of it, we look at something that is very straightforward. Jesus is calling the first of his disciples. He's already called three of his disciples, and now he comes to Philip and to. Nathaniel, he's calling them to come. But at the same time, they are coming to him. They are choosing to follow him. So, which is it? Did he choose them to come to him, or did they choose to follow Jesus? Well, we could say that it's a matter of perspective, couldn't we? Could it be that both are true? It's not either or, but it's both and. It's a question of perspective. If I was to say to you this morning, is a person who is five foot three tall or short? What would your answer be? Well, that very much depends on how tall you are. If I looked at somebody who was five foot three, I would say, well, they're not tall, they're short. I'm six foot two, and therefore they are not as tall as me, and therefore they are not tall. However, if you were four foot nine, you might look at them and long to be five foot three. It's a matter of perspective. Isn't it? And with that, we look at the text this morning, and we see that the perspective with which we look at things, and the perspectives that are apparent, are significant for us. We live in a beautiful part of the world, up in the northwest of Scotland, Loch Broom, and at the head of Loch Broom there is a famous gorge called Corrachalach Gorge. They're building a visitor centre there at the moment because there are hordes of people that come on buses every year to go down and take in the gorge to walk across the bridge and to feel their insignificance when faced with the majesty of God's creation. But you imagine that that bus turns up there and a a group of people go down and the first person is an artist. And they look at this and they say, wow, what a magnificent sight, what a vista. I must get this burned etched into my mind that I may put it onto canvas to appreciate it for time to come. The next person may be a pastor and would say, or a Christian would say, wow, well, look at God's marvelous creation. Look at his handiwork. Is this not a sight to behold? But then the next might be a shepherd from down the road would say, well, what a terrible hole to lose a sheep in. (laughs) They're all correct, but they're all looking at it from a different perspective. And so that's what I'd like to do with this text this morning, is look at it from a couple of different perspectives, as we consider the calling Of Jesus' disciples, and what we might learn regarding our own faith and our own ability over against God's sovereign choice. And we're going to do that by considering two perspectives. One is the divine perspective, that is, God choosing people. And the second, a human perspective, people choosing God. Can these things coexist? And how do they fit together? So, number one, then, the divine perspective. It's pretty evident as we open the Bible and as we read God's Word that Jesus is part of the choosing process here, isn't He? That He makes choices, that there is a preference. He makes His choice. Verse 43, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee, and finding Philip, He said to him, follow me. Now, this was against the norm. Culturally, rabbis, teachers of Jesus' day, typically did not do this with uh, their disciples. Uh, It was the protocol that a disciple would follow the teacher, not that the teacher would call the the student to follow them. Rabbis generally did not call people to follow them, but they would come, they would listen, but they would think, okay. Jesus, however, is different. That shouldn't be a surprise to us. He was always different. And we see here at the very outset, Jesus taking the initiative, Jesus having a preference, Jesus going to a people. So we see his preference, but we also see his omniscience, that he knows all things. He is all-knowing. In verse 44, it tells us that Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida, Jesus knew exactly where he wanted to go. He wanted to go to Galilee. And he knew before he went to Galilee who it was that he was going to meet. He knew that Philip was in Bethsaida, and so he makes his way to Bethsaida. Now, hold on to that thought for just a moment. Verse 47 says, When Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said of him, Here is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. How do you know me, Nathanael? says. And Jesus responds, well, I saw you while you were still sitting under the fig tree before Philip called you. So, here's these two guys, Philip and Nathanael, and Jesus knows where they live. He knows a little bit about their character in advance of their meeting, and he knows even the secret hangouts that they frequent. He is all-knowing. Now, look at something in verse 50, 50, if you will. I'll call this uh, providence. There is this prediction. You believe because I saw saw you, I told you I saw you under the fig tree. You will see greater things than that. Jesus is omniscient. He is all-knowing, and he knows that he could arrange Nathanael's life into whatever experience he predicted. That's Providence, isn't it? It's God enacting things within the world to shape our experience—the supernatural arrangement of natural events. Now, that's not the miraculous. People mix up perhaps providence and miracles at time. The, the miraculous is the intervention of the supernatural, which is imposed upon the natural world. Providence, however, is simply natural events that happen according to the sovereign will of God. The word providence itself comes from the Latin providento, which means to see in advance. God sees, God knows, and God arranges everything in advance. He is sovereign. By definition, He is in control. He has all control. So, these two guys, Philip and Nathaniel, they're being schooled in theology in one paragraph. It's like this little crash course that God knows who they are, where they are, what they're doing. He understands them, and He comes to them to call them to Himself to choose them. Now, from the divine perspective, that is always the case. People come to know the Lord Jesus Christ as Lord and as Savior because God has sought them because God seeks us, first and foremost, it doesn't matter who they've gone to hear or who's initiated the conversation or what the series of events have been. It is God who is the architect of all these things, because ultimately and originally, faith and salvation begins with God and with His choice and with His predestination. And they're going to discover that, and hopefully we will too. John 15, 16 uh, Jesus says to his disciples, "You did not choose me, but I chose you, and appointed that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last." But notice this. Go back to uh, verse 40. You've got Andrew and Simon Peter. Uh, they've, they've heard of, of Jesus. They're following. The first thing Andrew did was go and find his brother Simon. And what did he tell him? "We have found." the Messiah. You go down to verse 45, and Philip goes to Nathanael, and says, we have found the one who the Word speaks of, who the prophets wrote about. We have found him. And then in verse 43, it says, Jesus went to Galilee, and he found Philip. Finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. So, the question is, really, who finds whom? Well, we have the two different perspectives here, don't we? We often say, well, you know, you hear of people who are incarcerated saying, I found God. God wasn't lost. We were. Some of us perhaps still are. Steph McLeod, I'm sure known to many of you, singer-songwriter, recovering uh, addict, wrote a song called, When Jesus Found Me. And from a theological standpoint, we say, mm, is that really the truth? And then you listen to his words. When, Jesus, when I found Jesus, he was holding on to me. When I found Jesus, he was standing over me. When I found Jesus, he was walking next to me. When I found Jesus, he was heavy on my heart. I once was lost, but now I'm found, said the hymn writer. I was blind, but now I see. So what we're presented with here are the deep mysteries of election and predestination. And you say, Whoa oh, man, this is some heavy stuff for a Sunday morning. And yet it's really important for us to consider these things because we have to make a choice, don't we? On one hand, we have the Bible's frequent command to us, the command to the non-believer to engage in choice, to make a decision, to choose. John the Baptist has already said it many times, repent and believe the good news. Take a step Engage in an action. Turn from your sin. That's what to repent means. And believe. Put your trust in. Rest all of your hope upon. There is a command there to engage in choice. Matthew 11, Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Well, it's an invitation. There is action required on the part of the person who has been invited. John 5 He says to the Pharisees, to the Jewish leaders, you study the Scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very Scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. John 7, Jesus says, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, Scripture said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. That's just Jesus talking. You can go many other places. Acts chapter 16, uh, the Philippian jailer, whilst he's uh, there, they replied, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. There is action required on your part. And if you act, if you choose, then there is life and there is hope and there is eternal security. And yet, at the same time, the same Bible that we learn that we are to choose and to take a step, we discover that we cannot do it wholly on our own. In fact, we discover that whatever choice we have made has already been predetermined by God, that we've already been elect by God out of the world system for salvation before we were born. John chapter 6, Jesus says, "'No one,' Can come to the Father who sent me unless the Father who sent me draws them. No one can come to the Father unless the Father who sent me draws them. Paul's even more specific, isn't he? For God chose us in Christ before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in His sight. In love, He predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with His pleasure and His will. Spurgeon said of this truth, it's a good thing that God chose me before I was born because He would have never picked me afterwards. So here we have sovereign election and human decision coming together, and they seem as though they are opposite and they cannot be reconciled, and yet we are presented with them in Scripture. We have what's called an antinomy. Uh, an antinomy. Uh, J.I. Packer's got a very helpful little book called Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. I'm sure some of you have read it. And he talks about this antinomy. He says that here we have, a, well, here in John 1, we have this theological antinomy. The definition of the word is an apparent contradiction between between two equally true conclusions. An apparent contradiction between two equally true conclusions. Packer says this, for example, in physics, we have an antinomy. It's called light. There is cogent evidence that light exists as wave, but there is equally cogent evidence that light is particle. But it is not apparent how the same substance can be both wave and both particle at the same time. But there is evidence that it is. That is an antinomy. So, we have a theological antinomy here. So, what do we do about it? Do we draw swords? Do we argue about it? People have done that down through the centuries. People have debated and fallen out and argued about these things. There is a tension, but might I suggest that we must let the tension remain? When I was coming down from uh, Ullapool on Friday, I crossed the Kessick Bridge. And those of you who know the Keswick Bridge know that it is a suspension bridge. I'll be going, God willing, tomorrow to Edinburgh for a, a training course, and I'll be crossing the Force Road Crossing, which is a suspension bridge. And in a suspension bridge, those civil engineers among you will know that there are opposite forces at work that actually allow for these bridges to stand. And these opposite forces are required in order for the roadway to remain intact that we might pass from one side of a chasm to another. Now, we could sit at the other side of the bridge and say, well, I just don't agree with this. How can it be that there are two opposite forces at work here, and how is it that that holds everything together and it allows me to to cross over the bridge? And yet, that's exactly what happens. And I submit to you that here we have that same thing, don't we? We have that tension between the predestination of God and the free will of man, and they are at odds with one another, and yet they're working in harmony in order for our faith to stand. You have it in Scripture. John chapter 6, verse 37, you have it in the same verse. All those the Father give me will come to me. That's election. That's sovereign choice and whoever comes, I will never drive away. There's human choice. Whoever comes, there's a choice. If we will come, that we will never be driven away. He does it again in Luke chapter 22 regarding Judas Iscariot. The Son of Man will go as it has been decreed, that sovereign election, but woe to the man who betrays him, the one who makes the choice. There's human choice. So, we can polarize about these things, or we can see that there is tension, and yet even within that tension, there is harmony. There is a roadway made for us to God. On one hand, mankind, humanity is not just sitting there passively, uh, being irresistibly grabbed by God and thrust into His kingdom. But on the other hand, Mankind is not trying to discover some hidden God that cannot be found. The truth is that God chooses and we respond. It's kind of like throwing a line to a drowning person. Will the line that is thrown to that person save them? No. Not unless they take hold of it. And even when they take hold of it, unless there's somebody at the opposite end of that line to either pull them onto the boat or to the shore, then it's Meaningless, isn't it? You need three elements here, don't you? You need the person in the water to take hold of the rope. You need the person standing to pull them in. You need the rope, you need the desire to be saved, and you need the person to do the saving. And so God, in His goodness, has thrown us a line, as it were. And He wants us to take hold of that line in order that He may pull us in to Himself, that He may save us. It's all of Him. We cannot do it ourselves, and yet we have to take hold of the line. We have to make a choice. So, we have the human, we have the the divine perspective. Secondly, we have the human perspective, how we choose God. It's prominent here in the portion that we've read. Philip seems to have obeyed immediately. Jesus comes along and he says, follow me, and Philip is willing to do that. Immediately, he's willing to do that. Immediately, he wants to go and tell his friend Nathaniel, his brother, his good friend. He's thinking, somebody else needs to know about this. Philip is just ready, right at that very uh, outset. And there are people like that, fertile. It's the parable of the sword, isn't it? Fertile ground, a fertile heart, uh, waiting for God, almost as if they've been waiting all this time and things, the lights go on, and yes, I will believe, and I will follow, and I will come. And then there are the Nathaniels. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? He's much more skeptical. He has many more questions. He's much more critical in thought about this Jesus who is coming onto the scene. So, from a human perspective, there are a few elements that we might consider. The first of them being investigation. Philip comes to Nathanael and he says, look, the one that has been written about this, Jesus who the prophets spoke about, uh, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nazareth, he says. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Come and see, says Philip. So here we have Nathanael the skeptic saying, wow, very good. Nazareth? Nah, I don't think so. I mean, Nazareth is just a backwater kind of place. It's not the kind of place where anything significant is going to come from. Nathaniel is one of these people who who is maybe wrestling with truth and who hasn't quite reached the point where they're willing or where they're ready to believe. And he he pours disdain on Philip's encouragement here, doesn't he? The, The Galilean people were viewed as Backward people, the Chuchters, the people from Lochbroom to the uh, cosmopolitan people of uh, Dundee, for example, they were looked at as illiterate, the kind of backward redneck uh, kind of people, and that's how the Judeans saw the Galileans. But even in Galilee, the Galileans had a place that was worse than every other place, and that was, of course, Nazareth. Now you can think in your own mind of a place that maybe. Springs to your own mind or experience. I'll not give you an example of anywhere in case somebody is from there. But he thinks, Nazareth? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? I don't think so. This is just a backwater place, an insignificant place. This Jesus, the son of, uh, uh, of Joseph, the illegitimate son of Joseph, the, the, the carpenter? Really? So what, Philip? Why are you bothering me from my quiet spot underneath? the fig tree. But he says, come and see. There is this investigative thought within Nathaniel's mind, skeptical, critical, doubtful, but he comes. And as he comes, there is belief, isn't there? There's belief. When Jesus saw Nathaniel approaching, so it, evidently he comes, you know, he's, a, oh, okay, Philip, right, I'll come, just give me a break. As Jesus sees Nathaniel approaching, he says, Here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Huh. Hang on a minute. How do you know me? Says Nathanael. And as Jesus responds, Nathanael uses a word that's alethos. It means truth. You're, you're, gent- you're the real deal. You couldn't know these things unless you are who you say you are. You are the one. You saw me underneath it. How did you know I was under the fig tree? You must be the son of God. You must be the king of Israel, just as you say. And it's in that moment you see Nathanael believe. It's a light bulb moment. He just believes right at that very juncture. You see the difference between divine election and human decision coming right together, just in that in that flash. We don't know what the fig tree thing was all about. People have uh, debated about that, but there's nothing really said about it, so we're not going to dwell on that for at any time. But we've all seen people like Nathaniel, haven't we, in our Christian lives, in our Christian walk, those who have got issues, those who have got struggles, those who have questions, those who are critical and doubtful and skeptical. And then there comes a moment and it all becomes clear. There is that moment of belief where they go from skepticism to the salvation of God and belief in Him, and they are transformed in that moment the light goes on within a split second in their lives, and they believe. For others, it's a much slower burn, of course. There is investigation. There is belief. There is revelation. Because that's the third stage, isn't it? You investigate, you come to faith, and then you grow as you find out more, as more and more is revealed to us. We found the one whom the the, the prophets and the law uh, write about, Jesus of Nazareth, son of Joseph. Philip is excited. He is amped up at, at this point. He's seeing everything falling together. The Messiah, this is the one that they wrote about. This is the one that we've learned about. This is the guy, Nathaniel. This is him. I see it. I see how the whole Bible fits together. And we see that in individual believers' lives, don't we? When they fall in love with Jesus and when they they fall in love with the Bible, when it becomes the living Word of God to them, not just dusty words on a page, when the Bible, God's living Word, becomes the sole guide for living, when it becomes the thing that we turn to in our lives for direction and for guidance and for wisdom. Spurgeon used to say that a Bible falling apart usually belongs to somebody who's not. And there's truth in that, isn't there? That a well-worn, well-read, well-used, well-applied Bible is usually owned by somebody who is fairly well together. Martin Luther used to say, the Bible has hands, it grabs hold of me, it has feet, it runs after me. We're to investigate after investigation comes belief. After belief comes revelation. But ultimately, we are ushered into life, abundant life, an adventurous life as we come to faith in Jesus. You think that's good, Nathaniel? You ain't seen nothing yet. There's going to be much greater. You're going to see even greater things than that. In the very next chapter, Jesus Conducts his first, performs his first miracle in Canaan, Galilee. Where's Nathaniel from? Canaan, Galilee. He sees him turning water into wine. Uh, he'll see Jesus throughout his life uh, perform so many other miracles. The fact that he knew him under the fig tree will fade into obscurity and insignificance as he sees the deaf hearing again and the blind seeing again and the dead living again, greater things than this you will see. You believe because of what I told you, I saw you under the fig tree. What's Jesus doing here? What's he alluding to when he says that uh, he sees heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending? Well, I think he's reaching back into history, isn't he? Into Genesis 28, to the story that Nathaniel would have been familiar with. Story about um, uh, Jacob, who stole the birthright from his brother Esau, was found out, so he ran away from home, fled into the middle of the desert, so tired, so unprepared for the journey, feeling so abandoned by God, he falls asleep with his head on a rock. I have to be pretty tired to do that. He falls asleep, and during that night, he has this vision, doesn't he? He has the vision, and it's a vision of angels coming down out of heaven to the earth and going back up that ladder into heaven, Jacob's ladder. He sees all of that traffic to and from the earth, and he wakes up the next day and he says, surely God is in this place, and I knew it not. And he names the place Bethel, house of God. What does Jesus say to Nathaniel here? You will see the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. What's he saying? Nathaniel? listen, I'm the ladder. I'm the mediator between heaven and earth, between God and man. And listen, you're going to see that in the days ahead. There is a way to make contact with God the Father, There was a way for Nathanael to make contact with God the Father. It was through God the Son, the living Word, the Word who became flesh and made His dwelling among us. And guess what? That's the same today. And when we come to Him, when we come to Him in belief and faith, when we put our hope and our trust in Him, as He draws us inexplicably and irresistibly to Himself, and as we put our trust in Him, it's as if He's saying, buckle up. This is going to be the ride of your life there are great things ahead. The Christian life is the ultimate adventure, is it not? Yeah, there's ups and there's downs and there's potholes and pitfalls and hardships and trials, and yet there is a joy that transcends all of that, that is is surpassing every challenge that there is in life, that we may have joy everlasting, that we may be able to give thanks in every circumstance in Christ Jesus. Might I suggest to you this morning that if you're the redeemed of God, if you are a believer in Christ, then you know where your ultimate destination is. You know where the flight is going. So, might we enjoy the journey? Might we enjoy it? May we have joy on the journey, regardless of what might happen. Rather than living with our heads between our knees and wringing our hands and worrying about this and that, we know our destination. It is predetermined. We are on our way. We will get there safely. There may be turbulence. There may be hardship. But we'll get there Will we enjoy the scenery. Maybe you haven't reached the point of faith yet this morning. Maybe you're like Nathaniel maybe you're critical, maybe you're skeptical, maybe you've got questions. Good. Bring your questions. But you're here, and you're here because God has chosen you to be here. God has predestined that you would be here. God wants you to know that He is with you and that He is calling you to come. Will you? Will you come? You may have struggles and trials. We've all got them. But will you come? You see, when Philip came to Nathanael and said, come and see Jesus, Nathanael put up a child. Oh, Nazareth, what, you know, What anything good come out of Nazareth. You know, what's he going to do about this and what's he going to do about that? And Philip would say, I don't know. What's he going to say? I don't know. What does Philip say? He says, come and see come and see. He doesn't give them all the answers, and that's an encouragement to us as the Lord's people, as Christians. We don't have all of the answers, and we can't overcome some of the challenges that people put before us, but we can say to them, come and see. Come and see Jesus. So simple, isn't it? Oh, well, what about this, and what about that? I don't know. Come and see. Come and see Jesus. Yeah, but come and see. Yeah, but I'm not going. to Come and see. Will you come to Jesus today? You may be surprised by what you learn about him and indeed about yourself. He says, come. Come to me and I will give you rest. Rest for your soul. Come to me and I will give you life and life abundant. Come to me and I'll give you eternal security. Come, I have given my life that you may live eternally. Everything has been done. Every provision has been made. Will we come? If we do, then we will discover the ultimate adventure, and we'll discover that the Lord who calls us has been waiting for us, as He has chosen us. He's chosen you to be here today, and He wants you to know true life in Him. Come and see. Let's pray. Lord, our God, we thank you for the simplicity of the gospel and yet for its profundity. We thank you that you have called us to yourself, and yet you give us the opportunity to make a choice, that you give us free will, that you desire that none would perish, and yet you do not strong arm us. You have not made us robots or automated, but Lord God, that we have the free will to choose. And so, Lord, we pray that we would engage in choice this morning, that we would choose to worship you choose to follow you, choose to delight in you, choose to point others toward you, the life giver. Lord God, we thank you that you have called us and that you chose us before the dawn of creation, that you look down through the corridor of history and selected a people for yourself. We give thanks that we are them and that we can rejoice in your name this morning. Lord, call those outside your kingdom, those who do not know you, draw them to yourself. Yet this morning we pray.